when people found out I was involved in the Baki case, there were a lot of people who came up to me and said, Bo, how could you do this? Look what you're doing to the country. We've got to do this. And my answer was, no, you don't have to do this. There are other ways to deal with this problem other than using a racial quota. If you have 100 places in a class and you let somebody in because of their race, you're keeping somebody else out because of their race. For more than 50 years, colleges and universities across the country have taken race into account as they craft their incoming classes. But now a pair of lawsuits, soon to be heard by the Supreme Court, could change the face of higher education in this country. It's the biggest challenge to affirmative action in a generation. And given the makeup of this Supreme Court, it's very likely affirmative action in college admissions could be found unconstitutional. Over the next few episodes, we'll explore the arguments and the people driving this latest battle over affirmative action in higher education. Does the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment prohibit all discrimination based on race? Or is benign discrimination taking race into account in order to help groups that have been marginalized? Is that okay? Does the Constitution leave room to remedy society's ills? I'm Matthew Schwartz, and this is Uncommon Law. You do not wipe away the scars of centuries by saying now, you are free to go where you want and do as you desire. When President Lyndon Johnson gave the commencement address at Howard University in 1965, he also gave voice to his administration's vision of equality. You do not take a person who for years has been hobbled by chains and liberate him, bringing up to the starting line of a race and then say, you are free to compete with all the others and still justly believe that you have been completely fair. And that vision made one thing crystal clear. Simply tearing down barriers, proclaiming everyone to be equal, is not enough. You've got to do something. And this is the next and the more profound stage of the battle for civil rights. We seek not just freedom but opportunity. Not just equality as a right and a theory, but equality as a fact and equality as a result. The question became how to address, at least partially, some of the wrongs that had occurred over a very long period of time in this country. Michelle Adams is a professor of constitutional law at the University of Michigan Law School. And in every way, in terms of socioeconomics, employment, education, health, many of the sort of major indicias that we think about in terms of what it means to have a good life, African-Americans were lagging and they were lagging because of institutionalized racism. And so the question became how to deal with that. And one of the answers, and certainly not the only one, was this idea of affirmative action. As a response to years of Black community activism, the Johnson administration continued the work of Kennedy before him directing the government to take affirmative action to ensure that people of color weren't just treated fairly, but actually given job opportunities that they had been denied in the past. And universities took up the mantle of racial justice as well. Black activists and the civil rights movement were responsible for putting us into a position societally where the institutions of society 
felt it was necessary to, to have more diversity and representation of people of color in the particular institutions. But even while some institutions were trying to do their part to repair the damage of discrimination, the world was bubbling over. And I say segregation now, segregation tomorrow, and segregation forever. We want to say to the people of America that we are not about to turn around. They put their club upside your head and then turn around and accuse you of attacking them. Yes, we're on the move and no wave of racism can stop us. Because the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. How long? Not long. Ted Shaw is a law professor at the University of North Carolina and former president of the NAACP's Legal Defense Fund. Although affirmative action began in higher education in the mid to late 1960s, it really picked up even more steam. Some very sad news for all of you. After the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. Martin Luther King was shot and was killed tonight. When institutions of all kinds throughout the country began to take deliberate efforts as part of the introspection uh, that came after the assassination of Martin Luther King and the violence that rocked American cities. At one point early in the evening, more than 100 fires were burning, some of them in an area just 20 blocks from the White House. colleges and universities thought about what their place was in remedying the effects of that long history of discrimination and segregation and exclusion. Colleges and universities, particularly the most selective ones like Harvard, took it upon themselves to try to increase the number of black students at their campuses. And just one year after the civil rights protests of 1968, enrollment skyrocketed. A New York Times report from the spring of 69 showed that in some cases, the number of black students admitted to selective institutions more than doubled. But not everyone was in favor of affirmative action programs. In fact, a 1977 Gallup poll found that 83% of respondents opposed giving preferential treatment to women or minority groups. The following voices from a 2016 Henry Louis Gates documentary on affirmative action are representative. I'm sorry that people had to go to the back of the bus, yet I was not here when it happened. I don't feel that I owe a black a thing for what happened in the past. They're taking all our jobs and everything. We got nothing. Since they came in, we got nothing. The whites got nothing. Why they should I, I be uh, discriminated against because I'm white? That 1977 Gallup poll found that most Americans believed admissions committees should admit applicants based on ability alone. There was a major difference of opinion by race. And in the early 70s, affirmative action policies began getting challenged in the courts. Which brings us back. How could you do this? Look what you're doing to the country. To Bo Links. My name is Robert D. Links. Everybody calls me Bo, which is spelled B-O. Today, Bo is in his early 70s. But in 1974, he was a new lawyer just starting out, and his first case was a doozy. I got involved in this case when I went to work for my best friend's father, a man named Reynolds H. Colvin, who was a very distinguished San Francisco lawyer and very active in the local community, been on the school board and the community college board. 
I went to work for Mr. Colvin right out of law school. And this was literally the first case I worked on. He said, I've got a civil rights case I need some help on. This is the CBS Evening News with Walter Cronkite. This wasn't your usual civil rights case. In 1976, Walter Cronkite introduced the nation to a case that could stop affirmative action in its tracks. In the drive by governments, businesses, schools to catch up after decades of racial discrimination, there are many whites who feel that they are the ones who now are discriminated against. A test case that could have far-reaching implications has now reached the Supreme Court. The Davis Medical School had 100 places in its entering class. Of the 100 places, 84 of them were selected through what was known as the regular admissions program, and 16 of them were selected by a task force program, also known as the Special Admissions Committee, that was governed strictly by race. The four categories were African American, Hispanic, Native American, and Asian American. A white person could not enter the school through the task force admission program. Bonke applied in 1973 and again in 1974, and he was not admitted on either of those occasions. One of the disappointed applicants was Alan Bonke, who sued, claiming he was discriminated against because he was white. Bonke was a pretty amazing candidate to go to medical school. This is Alan Paul Bonke, 37 years old, an engineer for NASA. He had a master's in mechanical engineering, and he had done work as a volunteer in the emergency room. From 1963 to 67, he was an officer in the Marine Corps, seven months in Vietnam. He was already trying to work on designs to develop a new type of gurney where somebody could be x-rayed without having to lift them off the gurney. I mean, this guy was, he was the real deal. Bucky avoids publicity with the same intensity and single-mindedness he pursues medical school. He wasn't a cause person. He wasn't trying to start a movement. He just wanted to go to medical school, and he felt he'd been kept out unfairly. Did you meet Alan Bucky? Sure. Well, yes, I met him several times. What was he like as a person? Bucky was, was quiet. He was very shy. But you could tell when you spoke to him, he was a very deep thinker. This was a substantive person. He took this seriously. He never talked about it publicly. The public knows little about him. There were all kinds of offers for him to go on television. And that's because Alan Bakke wants to remain as unknown as possible. He had no interest in doing that. Here, from the late 70s, is one of the only interviews Alan Bakke ever gave with reporter Bernard Goldberg of the CBS Evening News. Why haven't you spoken out before... Uh, it's, my, it's my personal preference to uh, not to speak publicly about the case. I like to keep my private life private. Oh, but you know, it, it's not a private matter when it goes to the U.S. Supreme Court. My own personal life is private, and I intend to keep it that way. So you're telling me, in your conversations with Alan Bakke, he never showed a desire to set down broad legal principles about the use of race and admissions so that all people would be treated equally? It, it wasn't it wasn't about that for him? He felt that he had not been judged equally. He thought that was wrong. He was never about, man, I'm going to stop all of this stuff. His motivation is he wanted to be a doctor. 
and he felt he was unfairly excluded from that school. End of story. The University of California used race to decide who was admitted. Not, they would say, to keep Alan Bakke out of medical school, but to bring other people into the medical school, people who otherwise might not have had the opportunity. Here, from the 1976 Walter Cronkite Report, is Donald Reidhar, an attorney who represented the university. The purpose of the program is to promote integration and to more effectively meet the needs of the medically underserved segments of our society. And then what do you say to the individual who thereby fails to be admitted to medical school simply because he's white? Well, that, of course, is a great problem. But we have to say the same thing to that individual that we say to dozens and hundreds of other well-qualified people who weren't admitted just because there were not enough places available. Links, for his part, agreed with his client's point of view. He didn't think race had any place in admissions. What we've learned historically is when government starts dividing people along race for whatever reason, you end up with injustice. You end up there every single time. So on behalf of Alan Bakke, Bolinks and Reynold Colvin filed a lawsuit challenging the constitutionality of UC Davis Medical School's two-track admissions policy. The legal argument was that he had individual rights under the 14th Amendment and that the use of a racial quota violated those rights. Simple as that. It wasn't quite as simple as that. They were also arguing the school had violated Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Which applies to institutions that get federal financial assistance. Title VI says that any institutions getting federal funding can't discriminate based on race. You can't use race. But the 14th Amendment was the main issue. And Bo Lynx wanted to find out who exactly its Equal Protection Clause was intended to protect. One of the things I wanted to do, among other things, was to go back to the extent I was able and trace the legislative history of the 14th Amendment. When you start reading the 14th Amendment and looking at its history and the arc that it's taken, the 14th Amendment doesn't talk about groups. It talks about people. It says no person shall be denied equal protection of the laws. It doesn't say no group. So what's interesting is that folks who come along and want to challenge the constitutionality of affirmative action plans as they are put together today rely on these pieces of law that were passed to protect African-Americans for the most part. Again, Professor Adams. Which is not to say that they shouldn't be more broadly understood, but it's important to remember that the genesis for the Reconstruction Amendments was African slavery. And if you want to talk about the original understanding of the 14th Amendment was this group of people who were newly freed slaves, right? And the Civil Rights Act of 1964, one of the provisions is Title VI, was passed because of the civil rights movement uh, and the actions of, of thousands, if not millions of activists across the country. And those are the genesis of those pieces of law. Arguably, the issue under Title VI, we always felt was even stronger than the 14th Amendment because Title VI just said you can't use race. Now, I think it's important to interpret law broadly to protect everyone. They were talking about individuals and they wanted everybody to be treated the same way. 
but white reverse discrimination plaintiffs who come forward now and want to challenge affirmative action plans are doing so using the very tools that were intended to protect African-Americans. When we return, Bo Lynx thinks he knows what the Equal Protection Clause really means. Alan Bakke knows what he wants it to mean. But will his side be able to convince the Supreme Court that setting aside a portion of seats specifically for minority students is forbidden, even if the school is attempting to remedy societal discrimination? Stick around. The difference between endless research and a winning strategy. To improve your firm's productivity and profitability, Bloomberg Law combines the latest in AI-powered tools and in-depth analysis to accelerate the research process. To grow your practice and make better use of your valuable time. The difference is Bloomberg Law. Tomorrow, the Supreme Court begins hearing arguments in what many consider one of the most important civil rights cases in over 20 years. This case was the subject of every talk show, every op-ed piece, everywhere you went on the street, people were talking about it. Do white males suffer reverse discrimination when minorities are granted special rights to jobs and college admissions? Today, on the eve of those arguments, Today, the, US the U.S. Civil, Civil Rights, Rights Commission, Commission said that colleges and businesses should use affirmative action to give preference in admission and jobs to women and to minorities. In the understatement of the year, it said that qualified white men will be disappointed about that, but that's too bad. It's October 1977. The Supreme Court is finally about to hear arguments in the case of Alan Bakke, and everyone is talking about it. When we got to Washington, we would ride in from the airport in a cab. On the radio, they're debating the Bakke case. If a medical school reserves a set number of places for minorities, is that reverse discrimination against whites? If so, is it constitutional? The case of Alan Bakke raises a potential threat to all affirmative action programs. Because you had people that felt like if we won, the world would end. There were other people who felt if we lost, the world was going to end. This was not your ordinary midnight of the Supreme Court. There were people camped out all over the front steps of the court. There were demonstrators marching in the midnight darkness. When we pull up to the courthouse the morning of oral argument, there are people out there in sleeping bags. They'd been waiting all night to get in to see it. By daybreak, there were hundreds of people wanting to hear what may be the most important civil rights case since segregation was outlawed in the 1950s. It was just a surreal experience for any lawyer, let alone someone as young as I was. And when you walk into a building and they're all waiting for you and there's that many people interested in it, it's exhilarating, it's scary, it's intimidating, and you just hope you're up to the job. By the time the Bakke case came along, there were kind of two positions. This is University of Oregon law professor Garrett Epps. He's written extensively about affirmative action in education. And one was that the Constitution and the Equal Protection Clause required absolute race blindness on the part of government. Government could never incorporate race 
into policies that distributed burdens and benefits. And the other said that as a remedy for the fact that you know, the U.S. had run a segregated economy for so long, that there should be openness to some systematic inclusion programs. What was the actual issue? What was the constitutional issue that the court had to decide? It had to decide whether the use of race in this fashion, that is in an explicit fashion as a tool for opening up a government institution to underserved groups, did that violate the Equal Protection Clause? First case on today's calendar is number 76811, Regents of the University of California against Bakke. Mr. Cox, you may proceed whenever you're ready. Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the court. This was it. Almost a decade after the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr., the impassioned social justice protests of the late 1960s, and now the decision by universities across the country to start using race to determine who would be admitted to help compensate for the treatment of people of color in the United States? The University of California now had the opportunity to articulate its rationale before the highest court in the land. Arguing on behalf of the university was famed Supreme Court advocate Archibald Cox. For generations, racial discrimination in the United States, much of it uh, stimulated by unconstitutional state action, isolated certain minorities, condemned them to inferior education, and shut them out of the most important and satisfying aspects of American life, including higher education and the profession. These folks have been closed out of these opportunities for, you know, essentially hundreds of years. Again, Professor Adams. And so this sort of writes at least a small bit of the wrong that's been perpetrated to create this as maybe a sort of a remedy for societal discrimination, right? There's all this stuff that happened, all these bad things. And so a school like UCAL Davis might be saying, we understand that we're operating against that background and we want to write a little bit of that wrong. Uh, and this is one of the ways to do it. Plus, the school argued, the fact that there weren't that many black doctors has a ripple effect on black communities. The greatest problem in achieving racial justice was to draw those minorities into the professions that play so an important part in our national life. They were talking about the need to ensure that there's more educated medical professionals in the black community, right? So one piece of it is to diversify the profession And by diversifying the profession, actually enhance the medical care that folks of color are getting. And crucially, in the 1970s, the school wouldn't be able to bring substantial numbers of black students into the medical profession on grades and test scores alone. There is no racially blind method of selection, which will enroll today more than a trickle of minority students in the nation's colleges and professions. But was a racial quota too blunt a tool? And how do you determine what's constitutionally permissible? If 16 spots out of 100 was okay, what about 20 spots? 30? 50? If a racial quota is permissible under the Constitution, are there limits? Here's Justice William Rehnquist. Mr. Cox, uh, what if uh, Davis Medical School had decided that since the minority population of doctors in California was so small, 
instead of setting aside 16 seats for minority doctors, it would set aside 50 seats until that balance were redressed and the minority population of doctors equaled that of the population as a whole. Would that be any more infirm than the program that Davis has? Well, I think my answer is this, that so long as the numbers of chosen are shown to be reasonably adapted to the social goals, then there is no reason to condemn a program because of the particular number chosen. Throughout the argument, Bo Lynx sat at the council's table as his boss, Reynold Colvin, prepared to make the case for Alan Bakke. Mr. Colvin. Mr. Chief Justice and members of the court. We had a specific strategy going into oral argument that had two prongs to it. One is, it's rare that a case is won on oral argument, but a lot of cases can be lost. Just don't lose it. And secondly, it was to never let go of the fact that this case was about Bakke as an individual and his rights under the 14th Amendment. Alan Bakke's position is that he has a right And that right is not to be discriminated against by reason of his race. And that's what brings Alan Bakke to this court. Colvin took the absolute position that race must never be considered in admissions, no matter how few seats are set aside for people of color. Here's Justice Thurgood Marshall. Your client did compete for the 84 seats, didn't he? Yes, he did. And he lost. Yes, he did. Now, would your argument be the same... If one instead of 16 seats were left open? Most respectfully, the argument does not turn on the numbers. So numbers are just unimportant? The numbers are unimportant. It is the principle of keeping a man out because of his race that is important. It was a highly charged argument. You can see how a lot of this is a conversation that you have with the court. You have that conversation in your briefs. You have it orally, too. Um, but they're, they're struggling. This is not an easy issue. Will the Bakke case make it to that Hall of Fame of great cases which changed the interpretation of the Constitution? Cases like Dred Scott or Marbury versus Madison? Or Brown By the end of June 1978, the Supreme Court had reached a decision. This is the CBS Evening News with Walter Cronkite. Good evening. The Supreme Court today issued what may be its most important civil rights decision since the 1954 school desegregation case. I was on the 30 Stockton bus in San Francisco going to work when I think I had a transistor radio or something like that. And they said the Supreme Court is issuing its opinion. Blinks gets off the bus and runs to a friend's office where they have a telex, sort of an ancient fax machine. And Links and Colvin are standing there in front of the machine, reading the opinion as it comes through. And it came through one page at a time. The long-awaited Bakke decision. It runs hundreds of pages, 40,000 words, and is subject to varying interpretations, with the divisions in society over affirmative action reflected in the divisions among the justices themselves. It's a split decision from the Supreme Court. There is no opinion of the court supported by a majority. The court divided 4-4. This is John Jeffries, former dean of the University of Virginia School of Law. 
Four justices were prepared to say that racial preferences were across the board forbidden. Four justices were prepared to say that racial preferences were just fine and indeed they could be numerical quotas. Four justices in favor of racial preferences, four against. And in the middle, swing justice Lewis Powell. So Powell was in the position of casting the decisive vote just because he was the one in the middle. And his reasoning, which the papers summarized as goals but not quotas, that became the constitutional standard for the next 50 years. Although adapted primarily to protect persons of the Negro race, the guarantee of the Equal Protection Clause, by its terms, protects all persons. It provides explicitly that no person shall be denied equal protection of the law. Despite this absolute language, our cases have held that some distinctions are justified, if necessary, to further a compelling state interest. In my view, the only state interest that fairly may be viewed as compelling on this record is the interest of a university in a diverse student body. It all came down to the vote of Lewis F. Powell, Jr. Again, Professor Garrett Epps. So he, by all accounts, agonized over this, trying to come up with the right answer. He finally concluded that the UC Davis program did not pass muster because it used that numerical quota that we've been talking about. But on the other hand, he wanted to say that sometimes race would be an important part of admissions decisions, and what would that be? Now, remember how college affirmative action programs started. And I say segregation now. Our God for the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. Colleges wanted to do their part to help remedy societal discrimination. But Powell explicitly rejected that sort of rationale. Discrimination by society at large, with no determined effects, is not sufficient to justify petitioners' racial classification. Societal discrimination as a rationale? Well, that's out. Professor Adams. Trying to create more black professionals who are going to then serve their communities? Well, that's out. Trying to just provide more remedies, etc.? That's not going to work. But some sort of diversity rationale? Well, yeah, that that might justify the use of race. Diversity in the subsequent debate about affirmative action is largely the contribution of, of Lewis F. Powell. A university's interest in a diverse student body is not limited to ethnic diversity. Rather, its compelling interest in this respect encompasses a far broader array of qualifications and characteristics of which race is only one. The UC program didn't take into account diversity in all its forms. It only looked at race. But some other schools, Powell said, got it right. He said, look at Harvard's program. Harvard has an admissions program that is about diversity. And what that means is you get, you know, all kinds of credit in the admissions program for various things, like 
It has to look at your test scores. It has to look at whether you played the flute. The farm boy from Idaho, a black student from wherever. If you're a Montana cowboy, you bring something to the class that someone from New York may not bring. The student who's an amazing musician. You know, we want to have a, a really diverse class because that's sort of like what the university is. And so from his perspective, it would be weird if you couldn't take race into consideration because that person might bring something special to the table that someone else might not. So in a situation where he imagined there was sort of this endlessly fluid admissions process, race could be taken into consideration as one factor among many in the admissions determination. Powell thought it was a wonderfully idealistic program. It was part of a holistic evaluation. So it, it came to be called Race as a Plus. Admissions programs that use race as a plus factor, one part of a holistic, individualized review of an applicant, were okay. But what happened to Alan Baki, where he couldn't compete for spots reserved for people of color only? That was not okay. The Davis-type program, one that arbitrarily forecloses all competition solely on the basis of race or ethnic origin, is not necessary to attain reasonable educational diversity. In my view, it therefore violates the Equal Protection Clause in the most fundamental sense. Which means... Baki gets in, and affirmative action's okay. I'm pleased with the decision, and that's all I intend to comment about it. Do you plan to go to medical school? Uh, Yes, I do plan to go in the fall. I asked Bo Links if he considered the decision a victory. I did consider it a victory because our goal was simply to get him into that medical school. You considered it a victory even though the Supreme Court blessed the use of race in university admissions, which you thought was against the Constitution? I think it's against the Constitution, but again, we set out to get him into school. Mission accomplished. One other note, an update from the University of California at Davis. 97 medical students graduated there today, among them Alan Baki. Dr. Baki began serving his residency at the Mayo Clinic in July. I think there are ways to have diversity without using race as a factor. I think there are ways to do that, and they are healthy to us as a society. And I would add this, that whatever one's opinions are, the problem of race in America is not going to be solved at a courthouse. Coming up on Uncommon Law. One justice sketched out in broad terms how race might be used. And a lot of what he wrote was metaphorical and general. Emboldened by Powell's endorsement of diversity as a rationale, are selective universities pushing the limits of the Powell opinion? They were putting a pretty heavy thumb on the scale uh, in some cases, and they didn't want to say exactly what they were doing. A generation after Baki, the University of Michigan comes under fire for its own admissions policies. Is 2% a critical mass, Ms. Mahoney? I don't think so, Your Honor. 4%? Uh, no, Your Honor, what... You have to pick some number, don't well, you? Well, actually, Once Your you Honor... Once you use the term critical mass, 
you're into quota land. Any numbers are more likely than not the third rail. Your Honor, what a quota is under this court's case is a fixed number, and there is no fixed number here. At the end of the day, what's being decided is whether black and brown people are going to be excluded in significant numbers. That's next time on Uncommon Law. Uncommon Law is produced and hosted by me, Matthew Schwartz. I also did the mixing and sound design for this episode. My editor, Josh Block, is the executive producer for digital here at Bloomberg Industry Group. Special thanks to our deputy EP, Andrew Satter, and Seth Stern, who oversees our Supreme Court coverage, for their thoughtful comments. Research assistance was provided by Tiana Headley and Jeffrey Leon. Fact-checking was done by Gary Harkey. Our cover art is by Jonathan Hortarte. And an additional thank you to Tom Taylor, Cheska Antonelli, and Lisa Hellam. Those nine justices in Washington can be hard to keep track of. That's where we come in. On our podcast, Cases and Controversies, we give you a week-by-week accounting of the Supreme Court, the filings, the arguments, the opinions, and much, much more. Check in on Fridays with Bloomberg Law's Cases and Controversies to find out what's coming up on the horizon of the Supreme Court. Download and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.